here with Associate Professor, how, how fancy is that? Associate Professor Sarah Verdon, and she is going to run us through her pregnancy, birth, a miscarriage in there as well, and pregnancy journey, because it's quite a journey. Um, Sarah, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're living, what you do, and who's in your family? Sure. Um, so I live in Colcairn, which is in New South Wales, a rural uh, small town, sort of between Wagga and Albert, if you know the area. And um, I'm a speech pathologist. I am a lecturer at Telstra University and I also have my own private practice um, working with um, lots of kids who need some help with their communication. And I have um, three little angels. Yeah, beautiful. And um, full disclosure, Sarah's my cousin, so I know her story fairly well. And it's it, we were just talking before I hit record and um, we kind of compartmentalised what we're going to talk about because there's bits from everyone, isn't there, Sarah? Yeah, so I've had four pregnancies um, and have three children, Frankie, who's seven, Sadie, who's five, and Ruby, she's eight months old. So you're a busy lady between lecturing and travelling the globe with your awesome with your awesome research and then teaching students and then practice and then three little ones. You've got your hands full. I definitely do. So I'm still in maternity leave at the moment, but even in maternity leave, I'm supervising PhD students and, you know, always keeping busy. So What's maternity leave, hey? Yes. Yeah, As I have Charlie sitting in my lap right now. So apologies in advance. <laughs> So um, I'm going to jump you straight into Frank's pregnancy, which we know you suffered pretty hard with um, uh, with sickness throughout Frank's pregnancy. But um, apart from that, um, not to minimise that experience, but apart from that, it was a pretty cruisy pregnancy. Um, I want to step you straight into like postpartum with Frank. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that time. Tell me what it was like starting the journey as a new mum um, and not a lot of your friends at that time had babies. No, and I'm the youngest of three girls, and my sisters didn't have children. My my best friend had just had a baby like six weeks before, but it was very not not that many people in my circle kind of had little ones. So it did feel like I was, um, you know, diving into the unknown. And I think obviously becoming a mother for the first time was just the most profound experience of my life, and something I had always wanted to do I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do career-wise but I always knew that I wanted to become a mum it was just never even a question in my mind and so it was just wonderful when I had Frankie and just the best day of my life I had a really wonderful birth with him um I had you know I was able to labor in the bath and at the hospital and everything just went to plan um, not a so small really, baby really either to labour. No, <laughs> the nurse said, how did that baby come out of you? And so, uh, yeah, he was nine pounds and, yeah, very big head. <laughs> I just remember you pregnant in the summer and just it just looked like you'd stuff like eight basketballs <laughs> up your shirt. As of At very- your wedding, I... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but he, everything went really, really well and, you know... Um, Aside from the fact that becoming a parent for the first time is kind of overwhelming because you just have no idea what to expect, I would say it was very seamless. So, uh, yeah, 
everything was going well until about the five week mark. So take us to five weeks. What's going on around the five weeks that you feel like started to give the wobbles? So um, my husband went to Bali um, for his cousin's wedding. Yep. And uh, when he left, we were fine. And then I think it was like the next day after he left, I think he just kind of wasn't feeding, which was weird because he loved his tucker. And um, my mum came down and I said, oh, I don't know what to do. I think we should take him into the hospital. Um, and, you know, being a first-time mum, you feel like a bit of a hypochondriac because, of course, your baby's the like, precious baby in the world and you need to take them to the hospital. So we did, but, um, you know, and they were very concerned because I guess I've learned now as a parent, the first thing they ask you is, are they eating? And he wasn't eating. So we found out that he had um, a urinary tract infection. Okay. Um, and I said to the doctor, you know, I'm so careful with cleaning him and stuff. And he said, mm, it's not really a hygiene thing. Sometimes they just get it. And so, but that was quite traumatic, you know, watching them putting a catheter in and putting like a cannula in his arm and stuff like that. So he knew. Um, but anyway, he was doing a lot. With um, like allied health professionals as well. Like I know when I had to put Charlie in, I was like, questioning myself I don't want to be the refrigerator mom like I, there's nothing wrong like I want to make yeah. sure that I, like that, you know you're sick if you're going and you're going to be with my colleagues you're sick <laughs> I don't want to look like the crazy mom who's just you know taking their kids to the doctor all the time but I was pretty you know sure that something was not right so okay. so how did you um, yeah so how do you TI and basically said that he needed antibiotics but also he needed to um you know get on tube feeding as well because he was breastfed at the time and he just wasn't feeding and they just kind of needed to set him up a bit and that was fine so we were staying in the peace ward in Albury and um, I had been staying with him because uh, my husband was still in Bali and my mum came in one night and said um, you know I'll stay with him the night you go home and get some sleep because you haven't had any sleep um, and I said okay so this is about 8.30pm so I went back to my house. I lived in Albany at the time. And I went to sleep. And for some reason, I woke up at 12.30, um, like just after midnight. And I just thought, I, I have to see him. I can't be awake him. So I drove back to the hospital and I said to mum, you go home and have a few hours sleep. I'll stay with Frankie for the rest of the night. And so I, I was just laying on that you know, little couch and it turns into a bed next to their bed and Early in the morning, I got a text message from uh, my friend and because it was my other friend's birthday. And the text message was talking about what we were going to get for her birthday. But for some reason, um, I couldn't read. And I thought, this is so weird. Like, Was the text blurred, Sarah, or was it like you couldn't actually see? No, I would describe it as I could see the letters. And I could not read. It was like it was in Arabic. Like I, it was like I had never been taught how to read. And I was thinking, come on, I can't be that sleep deprived. Why am I not able to read? And the thought that I was maybe having a stroke kind of crossed my mind. But at the time, I was extremely fit, extremely healthy, and you know, I was twenty eight years old. I just thought, no, I'm just sleep deprived. And so I sat there like an idiot, trying to sound out the words. I was like, okay, that's a T. What sound does a T make? Again, and... you don't want to hit that buzzer. <laughs> you don't want to be that person. Oh, I can't read. I can't see. 
I know. And so anyway, I started to get really quite stressed because I thought, oh, well, what is happening here? And so I did hear the buzzer and a lady came. Now, she was a nurse, but I think she was just like doing a caretaker role because she said, what do you need? All of the um, staff are in the morning handover meeting, so I'm covering everyone. And I said to her, I can't read. Um, and I handed her my phone and she picked up the phone, read the text message out aloud, gave it back to me and walked off. And what I should have said was, <laughs> uh, I think I'm having a stroke. She should have prefaced that conversation like, I normally can read. <laughs> yes. No, I didn't think that at the time. I have a PhD. <laughs> and so I, and then she walked away and I just sat there and cried. And I know I'm a speech pathologist. I know that the first hour or so when you have a stroke is the most important and I just sat there and cried and I was in a hospital in a hospital should have done something but it's hard to imagine what what takes over your brain when it's happening and my baby's asleep in the cot beside me strung up to all these wires and um my husband wasn't there I was feeling really scared and alone and I couldn't even text someone because I couldn't read and so finally the nurse came out I still remember her name was Jane and she left on the PS ward and she came out of the meeting and she came to check on Frankie and she could see that I was upset. And I said to her, I can't read. And she just grabbed a wheelchair and threw me in it and wheeled me around to emergency because she knew straight away what was happening. And so she um, the, I can actually read, I just can't yeah. see. Yeah. 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 And so then I went straight in and um, they did a CT scan and I don't think that they really picked up on it from the CT scan. So then they did an MRI and, um, yeah, it was quite a large um, clot on my brain. And so then um, they obviously gave me something to break down the clot and the main, so it was in my occipital lobe, which is the part of the brain that is concerned with vision, but also it must have affected part of my brain. That affects reading as well because I couldn't read and that was my first sign. So basically, I was extremely photophobic, which means I couldn't stand to have light. So I would just have pillows and blankets over my head at all time. I couldn't stand any form of light. And you can imagine, you know, in the hospital, they had like fluorescent lights, and it was just awful. It was like I was so overstimulated by everything. So and hang on, you're going from laying in the bed next to Frank, yeah. like Frankie in hospital with a UTI. To being wheeled like and it's not like you can text someone or call someone because now you're, you're in an MRI scanner so how long were you and Frank separated or did Jane take Frank with you like how is that no I was I was completely separated from him there was no one with him and no one knew what had happened to me because I was alone as well and my phone had been left in Frankie's room in the peace board and so it just happened that uh, you know I was laying there and this is after they'd done all the scans and stuff and they said is there someone we can call for you and, you know, back in the day when we were in high school, you know, we didn't have mobile phones. We had to memorize our parents' phone numbers. I remember and thank God my... <laughs> Strange to change. Thank God my dad hadn't changed his phone number since I was in high school. So I knew my dad's phone number off by heart. And so he, out of the blue, got a phone call from Aubrey Wodonga just saying, you know, your daughter's here and she's had a stroke. And so then... I think he called my mum, who was in Albury, because my dad was at the lock, which is about an hour away, and told her to come up to the hospital. And mum's probably thinking, my God, I just left 
in the middle of the night and everything is fine. What could have possibly happened? Um, yeah, and so then they came, came up and um, came to see me and it was just, yeah, very surreal. Um, I didn't really believe what had happened to me. Um, and it was terrifying because they said, we don't know what's caused it and you could have another stroke at any time because we don't know what's going on. And so that fear of not knowing if you're about to die or if another stroke was going to come, and also being a speech pathologist, I've worked with people who have had strokes, I understand the disability, knowing that I can't read and knowing that my job is that I'm a writer and a researcher, so thinking I'm never going to work again. All these thoughts are running through my head as I'm laying there in the MRI machine and then laying there waiting for my parents to arrive. And yeah, it was it was pretty traumatic, I would say. I actually feel like listening to you talk it back right now, like I remember it happening, I remember <clears throat> the panic phone calls throughout our family um, mm-hmm. when it happened, but I, hearing you say it, I'm like, whoa, how did you survive that time? Like seriously. I don't know. And, and also thinking about what's happening to Francie back in the face ward as well. Um, with, yeah, there's just a lot and it all happens so quickly and you just think, oh, I'm just going to wake up today as a normal day and then all of a sudden your whole life changes in front of you. And I'm thinking, you know, how are we going to pay our bills and what what's going to become of my life? Am I going to become a burden on my husband? Like all of these thoughts are coming through your head thinking, you know, what's it going to be like now? What's my life going to be like? Am I about to have another stroke? And so I, that night I didn't sleep because I was so scared that if I fell asleep, I wouldn't wake up. Because oh, I thought if I have a stroke in my sleep, that'll be it for me. So I didn't, I lay there awake. And I know that you've not had a stroke, but after you have a stroke, the fatigue is unexplainable. You're so tired. And all I wanted to do was sleep, but I just couldn't trust it. I was like, I just can't. I can't fall asleep because then I won't be there in the morning. And it was, yeah, it was really terrifying. And I still hadn't seen Frankie. So I think I was separated from him for two days. Yep. Um, and then they, that lovely nurse from the Peds ward wheeled him up because he was still connected to all the little IVs and stuff. But yep. they wheeled him up to, to my ward and brought him up so I could hold him. And I still got that. That photo was the first moment that I held him after I had the stroke, and it's just such a precious photo because uh, it's just like such a relief to see him. And oh my he's gotten really fat. Been a good time. I've been feeding him full of formula, and I was just like, "Whoa, what happened to my baby?" But yeah, it was really, um, really emotional. And this whole time, my husband still was going to see. So. It was so yeah. tough. So was it just yeah. was it just reading or was your vision affected? Yeah, my vision was affected too. So I had no peripheral vision. It was like looking through a tunnel. Everything was black on the side. I remember I had this one nurse that wasn't very nice. And my um, sister came to visit me. And I was not. I'm already <laughs> laughing yeah. because they, our family has no filter either if that hasn't come across yet. <laughs> talking about how this nurse was really mean my sister was looking at me really weird and I had no idea that the nurse was in the room but I didn't see her because she was in my <laughs> oh well uh, employee took uh, criticism poorly 
it is what it is isn't it like yeah so that was quite funny so um how how did you go like so you're in hospital frank's five weeks he's coming good obviously because they come they go downhill really quickly but they come back really quickly as well what was your recovery like it was really slow um but because i could talk and eat you know i've got this tired fairly quickly and went back home with a newborn um and life was really hard uh we lived in just like a little two-bedroom unit we don't need to gotten married and my beautiful sister would drive down and camp on our lounge and floor on a mattress for the first few weeks just to be there with me and i was really grateful for that but did the light sensitivity come home with you definitely and i think it still has never gone away to be honest I still don't really like my life. Um, that could be a neurodiversity thing, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, and my, yeah, so my memory was really poor. My short-term memory was really affected and it frustrated me a lot because I feel like I didn't know myself and my brain anymore. I could feel the changes to my brain. No one else seemed to be able to notice them because, you know, I could walk, I could talk, all those things. But you know your own head. And I did feel that I was like gaslit a little bit by the medical profession because I would tell them that and they'd say, oh, that's just being a new mom. And I was like, you know, I, I had a stroke and I can't remember anything. So I think it's not just being a new mom. But no, I never was referred to a neurologist or anything like that. Um, and I see a neurologist now, but that, it was probably like five years after my stroke that I first went to see a neurologist. And did you navigate that yourself like... I'm really not okay with where I'm at, so I need this help. Yeah, well, I think I didn't have that sort of sense of empowerment at the time. I think I felt, like, really shaken and unsure. And also just the fact that they, at this time, they still did not know what had caused the stroke. And so they were still saying to me, you could have a stroke again at any time. And so I'm, I'm just so nervous when I'm holding the baby. What if I have a stroke and lose feeling in one side of my body and I drop him? Like everything was stressing me out about that not knowing. It's just a really awful place to be in. And so I was on a heap of blood thinners. Um, so that was trying to prevent me from having a stroke. And I'm still on blood thinners now. And um, they just sort of did a whole heap of tests and... What they eventually found out from all the tests was that I had this thing called antiphospholipid syndrome, which is a blood clotting disorder. And ten times fast. Yeah. (laughs) Most doctors I talk to don't even know what it is. But yeah, it's a blood clotting disorder. Um, And, you know, when women are pregnant, their blood is more likely to clot as it is. And so when you have this blood clotting disorder on top of that, then the chances of getting clots during pregnancy are very high. Um, and so that's what they believe happened is I got a clot in my leg when I was pregnant with him and that sometimes, sometime in the five weeks postpartum, that clot had traveled up through my heart and through, um, scans, they found that my heart had a hole in it, which I also didn't know. Um, and that the clot had gone through the heart up to my brain and that had caused the stroke. I think that's something that we forget as women, like we get so constant, like so hyper-focused on getting pregnant that we forget mm-hmm. how intense pregnancy is on our bodies. Absolutely. And I 
fucked. I didn't even know this stuff. I had never had a single health condition before I got pregnant with Frankie. And so I just went into it with all the confidence in the world, um, not thinking anything would ever happen to me. And now when I have to tell people my medical history, it's boring and exhausting. And <laughs> I'm just like, you remember when I was bringing in that, like, my health report? Yeah. And you could opt in around. I was like, I am opting in because if I have to tell this story one more time. <laughs> <laughs> It was, I was only in hospital, not even a week, I don't think. So, oh, wow. um, yeah. So, but then obviously there's a lot of follow-up appointments and also after you have a stroke, you're not allowed to drive. And so I was packing the bus and we live in a rural centre, so there's not very much public transport. Um, yeah, so it was a lot of adjustment to come to terms with. And I think I really... Hang on, hang on. You'll live, like, I get it, rural settings, services suck, right? So you're having to take whatever appointments they give you through the public system, yeah, and it's show up at that time and they're usually clinics and they run late. But not only is your vision impaired and you've got a brand new baby who you're having to push around in a pram, but you're catching public transport. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So it's a lot of changes. Um, I'm a very fiercely independent person, so I really wanted to you know, I always try to work things out and have a bit of a glass half full can do attitude. But it was very, very struggling. And I think I held it together until this one appointment I had with, um, with a physician. And I guess sometimes when you work with medical professionals, they just don't really have that bedside manner. And I, one of the things that was really playing on my mind was about whether or not I'd be able to have any more children. And so I plucked up the courage to ask, um, this doctor, do you think um, this will have an impact on me having any more children? And he said, of course it will. Yeah, no, you won't be able to have any more children. And then he just moved on with the conversation as if that was the most easy, breezy thing. Like it was not Yeah, he tried to convince me to, um, you know, basically <laughs> get sterilized, like go into a permanent contraception or something like that. And I just said, no, that's not something I want to do. Um, and he was just very cold about it and yeah that really broke me and I didn't say anything at the time but I remember vividly going home to my bedroom and just sitting there and I called my husband and told him what the doctor had said and um, and then I just sort of sat on the end of the bed it just, it's just so sad I just thought this, this isn't what I thought it was going to be and I felt like all autonomy had kind of been taken away from me um you know that I didn't get to choose if I had any more children and that I could die at any time from another stroke and you know just this whole uncertainty but also just a lack of compassion from from this doctor really it really hurt me and I think that's when the postnatal depression really started yeah that that overwhelming undeniable constant sadness yeah yeah and trying to navigate being a new mum being super tired and you know Frankie was a beautiful baby um but I wasn't very successful with breastfeeding and I was so determined to be a good breastfeeder and yeah I saw it as another failure of my body that I couldn't breastfeed him that well I just kept persevering with it even though breastfeeding and I were having a terrible time and, you know, I just, it just wore myself down. I became very isolated, beginning. Um, in Albany, I didn't really have 
and his friend Sarah at the time because we'd only just moved there while well, we got married and I had moved there for work and now I wasn't working. So, yeah, I think my mental health really started to go downhill because of all those factors. At what point did you realise that there was a problem? Um, I don't know, actually. I, I know the moment that I got help was I used to go and see this maternal child health nurse and she was so lovely and I just sort of go there for something to do because, you know, I was very isolated. It was really easy to get dressed and get out of the house and I could walk there with the pram. And she used to give these breast and um, mental health you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, an Edinburgh. And yeah, the postnatal depression. And I just always lie on it and say everything is going great. And then one day I was feeling really low and I just answered it honestly. And she took a look at it and went, oh, okay, I can't let you leave. You have to let me call somebody. And so she was really good and she um, got me into this course that was for um, mums with postnatal depression. It was a 10 week course that I want to one day a week in Aubrey and they look after your baby for you while you were there and they started lovely. They gave you um, all sorts of strategies and resources and morning tea and it was very, really good and it helped me. And Was that with other mums that had postpartum? Because I remember yeah. having a discussion with you and we've talked about this, that, you know, good group work practice isn't sticking a whole heap of women who had babies at the same time in a group. And saying, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I actually went to Mother's Group and I really hated it yeah. um, because I felt like it was just a competition as to who was going the best and I knew I wasn't going very well. And so I felt really like it's going to make me feel more like a failure. I guess going to Mother's Group. So yeah. going to this group that was for mums with postnatal depression was actually helpful because I was a lot more honest about how they were going and it wasn't painful or anything like that was very supportive yeah and I think as we talk about mental health more we understand it better so something like um, 90% of women and don't quote me exactly on the percentage and I'll look it up and put it in the show notes but a really high percentage like more than half of women have intrusive thoughts um, in the postnatal postpartum period Um, and one in five women will have postnatal anxiety and depression and one in 10 dads so that means someone in your circle has had it and they've probably masked their way through it. I totally agree. And actually, I honestly think with those statistics, I kind of think everybody gets it a little bit. Like, you can't tell me that you go through this massive life change and you don't sleep for six months and you give up your body and you know everything and that you're just fine and dandy. Like, I think if we're honest with ourselves, just about everyone has a little bit of hope. Absolutely. I really relate with like the barks of postnatal rage, if that makes sense. <laughs> and that sounds so like bad. When you say it out loud, I think it's like really shame ridden. Like, oh, look, I go through these times where I, you know, come four o'clock. I easily could, you know, rip shreds off anybody um, if it's been a tougher day. But that's just the truth and the fact of the matter. Like, you know, I cope fairly well, but sometimes I have a rough day and you get postpartum rage. And you're a human being. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because the more I started to talk about it, my aunties and things started coming out of the woodwork and saying, oh, yeah, I had that. And then I found out that I had a great auntie that actually, I think, was put in an institution for postnatal depression because that was a really helpful way to manage depression. Um, but 
I think the more I talked about it, the more I realized that actually most of the women in my family had gone through something like this. They may not have had the word for it. Um, and they definitely didn't have the support that I have in terms of professional support, but it was a really, really common story. That um, program sounds amazing, particularly to be in a rural setting. Um, yeah, it was great. I've never heard of anything. I don't think that anything like that exists up here, so that is an amazing resource that's in your community. Yeah, and it was obviously very well funded. I don't know if it was one of those things that gets funded like for a year and it never happens again. I don't really know. Yeah. But I was just lucky that I got funneled into that service from my maternal child health nurse. Too. You know, it was very helpful. Um, and I was very adamant that I wasn't, I was adamant that I wasn't going to go on medication. Um, and so I didn't. Later down the track, I am now on medication and wish I had done that a lot sooner. <laughs> was your reluctance um, around medication with breastfeeding? You, you were still persevering with breastfeeding or was that just uh, a personal? It was a lot of things. Okay. Um, a stigma, I guess. Yeah. Um, and just not wanting to believe that it was that bad or that I, like being that independent, like I can handle this myself, I'll be fine. I've always been a positive person. I can get through this myself. Um, you know, I was very determined to do that. But now I realize that, you know, it's not a matter of strength. Having a mental health issue, you can just get help. Like if you had cancer, you get the treatment for it. Or if you've got a mental health issue, you should get the treatment for it. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a shame thing. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you said something really opponent once that, like, you weren't going to any more men's mental health things or something along that line. And we can, and you were saying, unless people are actually going to be prepared to talk about it. Like I'm not sitting around anymore and just, you know, chucking a few bucks in the coin and hoping for the best. I want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because being from a rural area, I've lost a lot of uh, friends to suicide and, you know, we have so many fundraisers and things. And I think I was feeling very frustrated that we kind of talk around the issue, but we never actually talk about it. Yeah. And yep. Um, you know, it's hard for me to say that I did really battle with suicidal thoughts and I haven't really told it like that um, because I don't know. I would never actually do it because I don't have, I would never bring No, the protective factor is your children in the, in the end, isn't it? Yeah. But I have battled with those thoughts and no amount of fundraisers that I've been to has stopped me from having those thoughts. Yeah. And so... And that's certainly not to disparage anyone who puts on those fundraisers because I do think it's really important and I do think the conversation has increased really on mental health a lot. But I actually don't know the answer because I can know when I'm in a good state of mind that, of course, suicide's not the answer and, of course, um, you know, you can get help and you can do this and do that. But when you're in that place mentally, it is very, very hard um, you're not actually you. You're not actually thinking rationally, and yeah. so I hope that somehow, some way, we can find a way to stop people from getting to that place because it is very, very hard to to help people once they're in that place, especially if they are under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and they just make a split second decision that any for the rest of their life. You know, I can totally understand the headspace that they're in when they make that decision because I've been in that headspace. Yeah. And I'm lucky that I had my children to pull me back from ever 
for one of a better way to pull the trigger from that on that decision. But I know a lot of young people who have made that decision and it it has ended their life and maybe if they were able to get out of that headspace, they would have wanted to stay. You know, there were people who were beautiful people full of life that would have wanted to stay with us, but their brain took over and told them told them not to. Yeah, right, because it's it's a feeling of wanting to escape from your own head and your own body. It's not a feeling of wanting to die. I've never wanted to necessarily be dead. It's a feeling of I just don't want to struggle and fight this battle anymore. Yeah. And I it does bring me a lot of sadness to know the people that we've lost because they that terribly sad moment got the better of them. And they weren't able to fight it off at that point, you know. And I'm very grateful that I have been able to and I have a good health literacy. I'm able to know what services are available and access them and that kind of thing in, in a rural area. Not everybody does. No, I think that's the key, isn't it? This is this is what the premise of this is all about, about people, how they navigate these issues when the services either don't exist or are extremely difficult to navigate. Like, think about yeah. it, you're, you're saying the maternal health nurse essentially navigated your situation for you based upon you being honest on a questionnaire. It'd be- and I had lied on that questionnaire many times before I told the truth. So it was, I had to be vulnerable enough to answer honestly. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, imagine if that maternal health nurse didn't know or that service didn't exist, realistically, yeah. to get specialist help, you would have been staring down the barrel of telehealth. Uh, it's so hard as a clinician, it's so hard to get rapport on telehealth. And as you know, sometimes they'll say, cool, we can get you an appointment in six months. Yep. And it's like, I don't know if I'm going to make six months. Yep. So it is really important to have not only like really good referral pathways, but services that are available today, like not in six months because that's not actually helpful for anybody. No, I know a lot of the time I'm trying to help service a wait list at the moment for an outreach clinic. And a lot of the time, by the time I ring people who have been on these wait lists for three, four months, they no longer require the service. So a lot of the time we spend the uh, uh, we end up shifting through the list quite quickly because these people have either sought services elsewhere or looked online or um, have yeah. o- otherwise, you know, problems given up. themselves. <laughs> given up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm always fearful that one day I'm going to make a call for someone on the wait list and I'm going to find out that that person hadn't made it. Yeah, um, and that because they had to wait, and they couldn't get what they needed. Yeah, and I think that's really, really, very tough. And and not to mention the the prohibitive cost. You know, it, it, my psychologist is phenomenal. I love her. Let's just two hundred dollars a session. Yeah. So, and Medicare would cover that. What ninety for yeah. ten sessions? Yeah. Yeah. And so, even so, to find one hundred and ten. Sometimes, as a mother, you see that as a luxury and you think, do we have that money for me to spend on myself or should I spend that on the kids or should I spend that on groceries or whatever it is. And, of course, it's not a luxury, but as mums, I think we often categorise stuff for ourselves as a luxury. And so, yeah, I'm lucky that 
I was able to afford it at the time. There's been times when I haven't kept seeing her because I couldn't afford it. Um, but I'm privileged enough that I do have, you know, a good job and can do that. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people just, that is an astronomical cost that they can't even fathom. And when you're talking that it could be weekly, it's it's not just 110 a month. It's, you know, 440 a month. You know, that's some... If you actually get the consistency that you need, that's right. And if you're in a really, really, like, terrible mental health space, you wipe a month and then cut it. Like, <laughs> it's not a lot. Nasty. Yeah. So we're going to jump ahead now. I'm going to ask you, how did you get to the point where you were navigating a second pregnancy? So, you know, you've been to this specialist. He said, nada, no more. He's trying to essentially offer you a probably hysterectomy, like some type of permanent um, solution to, you know, contraception. Yeah. He's saying you never can be pregnant. Like we're recommending that you never have another pregnancy. Where, how did you, how did we come to say, like, how do we get there? Yeah, well, um, I always knew I wanted more children. It was never even a question for me. And my family was very apprehensive because they knew the risks. And I think they, I just didn't want me to risk my own life to have another child. But to me, I just couldn't get it out of my head. And it's what I definitely wanted. So, I decided to get a referral to go down to Melbourne, which is about four and a half hours away, um, and see the specialist there at the um, Women's Hospital. Yep. And I was very fortunate. They looked after me really well, so it was free of charge, and I saw three specialists. One was a special substitution, one was a cardiologist, because I had the thing with my heart, Mm -hmm. and I think the other one was like, I would want to say something to do with blood <laughs> because okay. I have a blood clotting disorder. I went through everything with me and explained the risks and they sort of all had a bit of a conference about whether they thought it was worth the risk of trying for another baby or not trying for another baby and um, basically explained to me that antiphospholipid syndrome is a blood clotting disorder that has a higher risk of miscarriage because the blood clots occur in the placenta a lot. And so you have no trouble getting pregnant, which I never had any trouble getting pregnant, mm-hmm. but you won't, the, the baby won't survive because um, they won't get the nutrients from the placenta that they need. Oh, god! so they'll die. Yeah, because the placenta will get blood clots in it. And so that was a risk. Um, and so the other thing was that I was going to have to inject myself um, with quite things to thin my blood throughout the entire pregnancy to not only stop myself from getting a clot, but also stop the baby from from miscarrying um so from day dot yeah from day dot until six weeks postpartum as well okay and that's on top of the blood thinners you're already taking yeah so they actually took me off the other one and changed for for the pregnancy so we decided to go ahead with it okay um and we can see right away um I think looking back, my husband was a bit apprehensive, yeah. both on the health side of things, but also the postnatal depression side of things as well. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, really, we we both wanted another child. And so, I, yeah, I got pregnant straight away. I was really, really happy. Um, and then the pregnancy sickness hit me at five weeks. Um as I had had with Frankie, but this time it was 10 times worse. And they say that with a girl, it's 
in the West, and I can confess that. I couldn't even stand up right for the first 14 weeks. I had a mattress on the floor in the lounges, and I had Frankie there looking after him. And to this day, if I see Coco Melon, I will vomit because the association between the sound of Coco Melon and me vomiting is so strong. <laughs> I can't be near that. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Yeah, so you know, trauma is held yeah. in the body. <laughs> Thanks, bustling. No, thank you, Cocorella. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, that was a long and grueling pregnancy. And, and so you were sick from so, day dot where through to, like, the whole time? Till the day I delivered. I was on... Um, What's that? Undanzatron uh, medication. Yeah. And yeah. that just made me a human being. It didn't make me well. Like, I was still sick, but it made me well enough to function because I still had to go to work and um, had to raise drinking and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it was. I. And how did you manage the flexine <laughs> injections? Because that would have been a lot. Were you doing twice a day, once a day? I ended up only having to do once a day. Originally, they thought twice a day. Yep. Um, actually, it was okay because, okay, so before I had the stroke, I was terrified of needles, absolutely terrified. And then after I had the stroke, I had to have my blood drawn so many times that I kind of just got over it. <laughs> I was like, this is just normal now. So, yeah, yeah, I was, I was okay. <laughs> it was quite a painful injection, I find. Like, the, the feeling of the medicine going into you is, it's painful, I find, with quick pain. I don't yeah. know if you've ever had it. No, um, I've never had it, but and I've heard that it's very painful. It is painful, yeah, and you get, like, bruises and stuff on your tummy, so it looks quite funny. But I kind of got used to it. The whole pregnancy was awful because I was just sick the whole time. But, yeah. And then I delivered her. Her, her birth was, went really well. Hang on. And was there a plan around her birth? Because, um context because we didn't talk about frank's birth but frank was a big baby and he was quick yeah for the for a first birth baby ah yes of course i forgot all about this detail so i had to be in two this is the plan because yeah. if you go into labor naturally on blood thinners you can hemorrhage yeah and um so the plan was for me to be induced now i did not want to be induced because i'd had a natural birth with frank no medication and it went fantastic and I was like cool I want to do exactly the same thing with Frank as with Sadie as I had done with Franklin and they're like no you need to be induced and I was like well it's very hard to have a natural labor after you're induced because like it's extremely painful and yeah um so anyway just by total coincidence I was booked in to get induced at 9am on the Tuesday and I just naturally went into labor at 4.30am on the Tuesday so I never Ended up having to be induced, and so I'd also weaned. Oh, she's so smart. And I'd weaned off the blood thinners two days earlier because I knew I was being induced. So it all went perfectly fine with her. So I was very lucky. No, I was so lucky. Um, was were so you lucky. in MGP program? Were you midwife? Were you having to see the obstetrician at the public hospital? Like, what was your model of care with Sadie? Did you did you change? Uh, yeah, something? I was with my yeah, I was with my GP, but I also had a specialist obstetrician because okay. it was a high risk. Yeah, yeah. So she sort of just dipped in and out whenever she needed to. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. But no, that was all fairly seamless, this lady. So I was feeling good about that. Um, and she's a good baby. She's pretty cute. Yeah, 
I mean, she hated everyone except me, but um, now that you know her personality, she just knows exactly what she wants and won't compromise on that. So uh, <laughs> I should have known that from the start. And so beautiful sides aside, did you have any time where you felt like you might have been dipping back into the postpartum depression or you felt like that was really uh, situational around Frank? No, I did with Sage, um, but I think it wasn't as severe until COVID. Oh, yeah. And then, um, so Sadie was one when COVID hit. I remember because you were up here speaking at a conference. I was too, and I just got home on that last flight. Yeah, we threw you on a plane. (laughs) Before everything shut down. And yeah, I, that's when I really struggled with my mental health again, because basically I still had to work. I was lecturing, I was, um, teaching online and I had two toddlers at home 24 seven. And I just really, really struggled with that. And so that's when I started the medication was during COVID. And I think a lot of people started, um, antidepressants during COVID from what I hear. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that also the period of time where you suffered um, your miscarriage as well? Yeah, so that was the start of 2021. So I made it through 2020. Yep. Um, and then I got pregnant um, again. It was a surprise, I would say, a very happy surprise because I've always been at a lot of children that I knew I wasn't supposed to be. Because um, I think you had like this big conversation around Sadie, and there was all of these negotiations, and you know, um, you know, guidelines around, or you know, expectations around. You have to do this, and you have to do that, and there was a lot of planning, if that makes sense, around Sadie. Totally. So to get pregnant out of the blue and not be prepared um, was a little bit scary, and um, that was fun. I went straight to my doctor and said. First things first, I'm about to get really sick, so I'm going to need some on Danzatron. Danzatron, I want us five repaints, thanks. I'm not coming back here every two weeks. (laughs) And I need to start these blood thinners right away. And so I did. And then, um, yeah, I made it to six weeks. And I went, I had my sister visiting me, and I went to the bathroom, and there was some blood. And I was very um was shaken by that and I called my sister in as you do with sister and showed her and she's like oh that's not good and so I rang the doctor up straight away and said um you know can I need to book an appointment I've got some bleeding and so they got me in for one o'clock in the afternoon um and so my sister stayed with the kids now me being me I had a very important meeting at work at like 11 so I went to this work meeting and I was running it and there's like 16 people on the zoom call and I was running this whole meeting and miscarrying the whole time that I was running this meeting and I just look back on that and I think oh my goodness like it's so weird to be a woman isn't it yeah I went to the doctors and basically she said the process is we take care blood test measure measure your heat CG levels, is that? Yep. And then what you have to do is come back in five days and we'll measure your HCG levels again and if they've dropped, then we'll know you've had a miscarriage. And 
it just so happened that in this five days in between, I had a work trip booked. And because it was January, um, I took the kids with me because it was a preschool and school. And so I'm, I drove to Bathurst for this work meeting. I've got two kids with me. I'm still breathing. And at the whole time, I was just in a really firm denial that it was not going to happen. Everything was going to be fine. And I Googled and I saw that you can have this like implantation bleeding at yeah. about six weeks. And I was like, yep, that's actually what it is. You know, full blown denial in this limbo for five days until I could get back and do the second blood test. And then she called me when I was on this work trip. And I was in a park with the kids. And I just went out under the tree and that's when she told me, yeah, you've, you've miscarried. And she said, I just book an appointment when you're pregnant again. And that was the end of the conversation. No question about, are you okay? Like, no options? No. Like, you know, you're bleeding? Someone, nothing. Particularly in the context of knowing, I mean, we were making jokes about my health records. Like, she can see your my health records. She knows that you've had, she knows that you have a script for, um, mental health medication like yeah yeah and I just felt like really empty after that and it sort of made me feel like my baby's life was disposable like when you get the next one just give us a call this one's gone and they just thought to me this is a, this is a human child just like what I can see my other two children running around in the park and died and I know that I was very early in my pregnancy but the the grief was definitely still very real for me. Yeah. Yeah, so, and also knowing that I didn't think there was going to be another baby, so I think there was a lot of grief around that too. Yeah. Um, Because this one had been a bit of a surprise and, you know, my family and my husband were both very adamant about not risking it again. Yeah. Um, And so I had felt that this baby was like a blessing, like it just, through and I get to have this third child that I'd always won for and now I've lost. And I imagine that like when you have those surprises, you've had these big discussions that you like you've gone through, okay, right, the surprise and then oh gosh, what does that mean? Okay, yes, and like you 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 know, by six weeks you're at full acceptance. Okay, we're on board, we're doing this, this is what's happening. And then yeah. boom, it's not. Yeah. It's yeah, and then it's over and and I just was actually really struck by how sad I was. I thought that I would be like, able to get over it and I just couldn't get over it. Like it just affected me. My body had already changed a lot. I know in six weeks, I don't know, my body, I can tell I'm pregnant from like the day after conception. <laughs> like my breasts get bigger, my stomach was swollen. I could... I could I had could see the change in my body and now all of a sudden I look different but I didn't have that baby coming. And so, yeah, it was just a really out-of-body experience to feel like, yeah, that this baby was born and there was nothing I could do about it. I think I relate. And I wasn't going to, yeah. Sorry, I think I can relate really hard to when you're saying about you're struck by how sad you were because – like Chris was talking about last week that I sent him away shopping to the DFO because I was embarrassed by how sad I was and I felt like I kept having to mediate the 
the level of sadness that I had. Like I was, I couldn't sit there and just wallow and cry because this happens to everyone and it's, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't have another baby and, you know, uh, all the metaphors that people give you or all the rest of it, it's like, okay, well, I I can't be that sad. Like you're trying to normalise it and all I wanted him to do was just leave so I could just wallow. Yeah, and I also feel like what's the statute of limitations on sadness? Like, yeah, I was allowed to be sad for the first week, but then, like, afterwards, I'd be sad, and my husband would say, oh, what's up? And I'd be like saying, just still the dead baby. Yeah. Still my miscarriage. Yeah. Yeah, like, nothing is to feel that. And it it feels, you know, like, I don't want there to be any shame or stigma around it because there shouldn't be, but it was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to not feel sad about this again. And then I just so obsessed with the idea of having another baby and even though I knew that all the risks and I knew that it was a dumb idea and that no one was on board with it. Um, I would imagine you were bombarded with a lot of opinions. And it's so easy to have an opinion when it's not your life. Absolutely. And I just, yeah, and I just tried I knew I was not going to have another baby and I just worked so hard to make peace with it. And I just felt like something is missing from my life. And I remember physically looking in the rear view of my car and seeing my two children in the back seat and the empty seat in the middle of them and thinking, there's someone not here yet. Yeah. Someone missing. I had this real sense of being incomplete. And... By a miracle, I did end up getting pregnant again. We get room. Um, and I got rid of it, and she was extremely unexpected. <laughs> um, and so that's the why of my life. But to me, I feel so grateful that I got to have Ruby. She was, um, I think there's nothing, and it's really, really hard, and I say this knowing that there are women out there who have had miscarriages and don't have a baby in their arms, but I think the most curative, like, um, around grief of a miscarriage is the rainbow baby. Absolutely, and I really feel that it did help me because I had a baby to hold in my arms and I kind of make the great for women to not expect to feel that kind of feeling in a way the way I sort of felt that I explained it was that this baby had tried to come to me and it didn't work out and, then, and now she's come back Yeah, and yeah. so it's like I didn't really lose the baby she just came back to me another time and I don't know I guess we rationalise things in our heads as mothers and that's how I make sense of it yeah me too um, so, uh, Ruby's pregnancy was pretty rough cause she's another girl and she, um, that was a really rough time. I know, um, that. It was terrific. Yeah. <laughs> it was so, so, I was so unwell. I spent the best part of nine months looking at the four walls of my daughter's bedroom. I moved into the four room during my pregnancy because uh, well, it was a woman's bedroom, it was my daughter and my son's room, but they wanted to be with me and the only way that they could be with me was if I was laying down in a bed. So um, I put a double bed in there and I laid in there um, with them and if they wanted to hang out with me, they would come to my next meeting and need a book or 
posteo atar o something like that. Or you're the only way I could be with them. Um, my mother-in-law ended up moving in and helping out a lot with the kids because I was too unwell to really do anything. And straight back um, on the Klexane too? Straight back on the Klexane. Also, that looming fear of am I going to leave this baby again? Um, and so I did actually at 16 weeks. And this is what I think we mentioned that I don't remember for all the recording, but the way that women are treated when they present an emergency with a suspected miscarriage. So yeah. at 15 weeks, I started to bleed um, with Ruby. And I went to the hospital, no sense of urgency whatsoever, just sit you in the waiting room for hours and hours and hours and you can feel that you're bleeding and you're meant to just be cool and calm and collected and then I finally got in to see a doctor um, and they said, oh, you know, we don't know if you're miscarrying or not, we can do a blood test and then come back and I was like, oh, I've done that last time, I'm 15 weeks, I want to know if my baby's alive. Yeah, do you mean ultrasound? Yeah. Yeah, they said, oh, well, you know, the radio's the place not here because it was the weekend and I said, that's the machine there, isn't it? I could see it because I was in the, you know, emergency department. They said, yes, it is, but I don't know how to use it. And I said, wheel it over. <laughs> I've had two kids. I know how to use it. I can read that. I said, we'll figure this out together. I said, I cannot leave this hospital because I live 45 minutes away from that hospital. I yep. cannot leave this hospital not knowing if my baby has a heartbeat. Please wave the thing over my belly and just tell me if you can hear a heartbeat and then I'll leave you alone. And so, <laughs> with much convincing. I got yeah, but doctor. I'm sure that there's somebody up on the maternity ward who could get a Doppler and come down and have a look. Like, No, they were not interested. I had to push. And I think only because this was my fourth pregnancy and I'd been through hell and back that I pushed. Yeah, and said I'm not. I'm not leaving until I know if my baby's alive or not. I just cannot physically go home with that uncertainty. There's no way I can survive that. And so, yeah, they found a heartbeat, and I was like, "Good, uh, we'll go now." <laughs> this is me leaving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And look, she ended up being fine. Sometimes you do just get bleeding during pregnancy, and that happens. And but yeah, the fear of it was was terrifying. It, and I, I think it's just, and bottom line, the lack of compassion that this is someone's baby and it is their whole world. I think so to you, it might just be another patient, but to this person, their world is collapsing. So just even if you don't think it's that serious, take it serious. And I think the other thing is like, it's so easy to do those simple things and asking people to hold on for the amount of time that they're asking them to hold on for. Like, see you at the weekend. We'll talk to you in a week. Um, And it's a, it's the collective narrative of anyone rurally who presents in an emergency department to have a miscarriage confirmed or denied that mm. um, asking them to hold the amount of space before follow-up is so yeah. detrimental to their mental health but also then creates so much anxiety and panic in subsequent pe- pregnancies that is the anticipus of all the research that I want to do, like I'd love to see a protocol in emergency departments that says, hey, if someone presents with this, this is how we manage them, this is how we deal with them, and there's someone specially trained up on the on the maternity ward that comes down and manages this stuff. Because it's not rocket science to use a doctor. No, but it's easy. It's quick medicine. Like this is not like something that takes hours to come back. This is, this right. is As I said, I will leave you alone. As soon as you tell me the baby's got a heartbeat, I'll leave you alone. 
I don't want to be here as much as you don't want me here, but I just, I can't go home and live in uncertainty because I think it was like a Saturday night or something. It was the weekend anyway. So like, but also at 15 minutes, your kids know too. Your kids know that you're pregnant. Yes, they know. And I was, you know, 15 weeks, so I was quite pregnant. So, and they were aware that the, uh, the baby had died, you know. So everyone was very conscious of this and, you know, we just wanted conservative here. It, it would cost nothing to just give that little bit of certainty and then let me head on my way. Yeah. And and I also think, you know, like if I was in the early stages of this case, having to sit there for four hours before anyone saw me is not ideal. No. Because maybe there was something that could have been done. I don't know if there was something that could have been done, but if there was, you probably missed the window by yeah. sitting someone there for that long. Absolutely. You know, and that was not a nice feeling. It must feel so powerless. It does. And I think a lot of women feel so powerless when they hand themselves over to um, the medical profession. And even like you and I, we work in this field. And, you know, I know a lot about the medical field and I still felt that it was empowered. So let's jump forward to Rube's birth. Mm. I laugh because the reaction. How did labor, <laughs> knowing you so well, I know where this is going. How did you know labor was starting? Because obviously you had a plan with Sade. Does that make sense? And Sade got the memo. Like she was on board. She was like, yeah, ma'am, I'm going to come on, on my day of induction. I'm going to go into labor. Good girl. Totally. So the same plan as this one, they wanted me to get into. Yep. And I had an appointment at 39 weeks. Um, not to get injured, but to book the induction. And I had said to them... Running at a bit late? Yeah, I said, all my babies have come early and I have a feeling that this baby's going to come early and it's like that breathing a bit late. But then also I really did not want to get induced. So I couldn't just let it rise. Um, you know, not the best medical advice, but I did not want to get induced. Um, and so I actually woke up I was 36 weeks and five days, I think. And I woke up in the morning, went to the bathroom, and I had the show. So I'm like, okay. Within all my other pregnancies, the baby was out within two to four hours of getting that show. Yeah, so, don't joke around when we say says has quick labours. No. And so I said to my husband, all right, we're going to go to town because we live 45 minutes from the hospital. And um, we... <laughs> We had booked in to get a test. I don't know if this is superfluous information, but to test drive a new car that day at nine o'clock. And so, as we're driving past the dealership, my husband says to me, This is when we get into orbit. Uh, look, you haven't really gone into labor yet. Do you think we should still keep that appointment and test out the new car? Two beds, one stone. <laughs> we've come to town. I was like, Oh, yeah, we're all the way in town. I was like, well, I'm a bit nervous about my water breaking while we're just driving <laughs> car. And he's like, you'll be right, you'll be right. So anyway, I agreed to it. We kept driving your car, and your car was wonderful. We bought the new car. I signed the contract while I was in labour. Um, and then I said to him, well, I haven't really started proper labour yet, but I do not want to go back home because if we go back home and then it's not, it's going to take ages to get back in. There's an hour and a half gone. Like- yes. Yeah. So let's just go and hang out in the hospital. So we went to the hospital and because they knew of all the things, they were just like, yep, okay, you can have this room. We're not that busy. Just sitting here until it starts. And so 
Yeah, and then I started to get like sort of just steady contractions throughout the day, which was so different to my other pregnancies, which were just like boom. Yeah, so a um, slow build rather than hello. Yeah, and then it started big time, and it was unbelievable. And I had been very adamant that I wanted to go in the last tub because it had really helped with the pain that I with with the others, and I had a clean nurse who wouldn't let me get in the bath because she said you have to use four centimeters and I think for only three. And I said, I don't think that's a very scientific calculation, but anyway, so I had to go in the um, shower and the pain was like nothing I'd ever experienced. I'd given birth twice naturally before and it was unbelievable. And I had no intention of really like getting any medication and I decided to take my husband and they didn't like before. We need to get an epidural right now. Blown labor. And I'm crouched over the edge, edge, like I'm sitting on the on the side of the bed and hunched over so I can get to my back. And they're saying, stay still. And the pain at this point is like 25 out of 10. And um, like my legs were shaking uncontrollably, like I was not in control of it because of the pain was so horrific. And anyway, so this, Anissa just rolled in. I looked like he'd just come off a farm and had dirty work boots on. And um, he first didn't it. And he thinks it would be a good time for the student to have a go at doing that. And you're an allied health and professional, so you're like, oh, I have the student. I'm going to say yes. I teach students all the time. I go, I'm not going Yeah. And I thought, probably not the best time when I'm in full blown makeup. It's fine. I listened to you and I've tried to get that needle in five to ten times. And he kept telling her to pull it back out because it wasn't quite in the spot where he'd like it to be and he's just not at all vague and he's mm, I think it could go a little bit more to the left pull it out and we'll try it again and I am screaming in labour and I'm saying it could eat I'm not sure that you're doing that and um, my husband was saying like because I couldn't see you obviously but he could see what was happening him and the nurse because they were both holding one of my hands he was like oh my god put that needle in and he and he was just not facing me because he was just like, well, just give it another guy, try again. And so she finally got it in and I was just about to put the medication in to numb me and my waters broke everywhere and the head came out. And Gosh. so then they said, oh, we haven't got time to do the epidural now. So then we had to take the thing out of my back while it is between my legs. And and then the nurse said, I say, you don't have to but naturally and I was defeated I said I can't do it I can't do this I cannot do it like I was I'd just never known pain like it before and I had a percentage which was so different and um luckily she was a she was early she was a very small baby three pushes and she was out thank god so yeah so that was fine and then they held her up and I put my hands out to to hold her and put her on my chest and I just saw her and she's completely purple and her head just flopped out and so as they were about to put her in my arms they realized that she was not alive basically yeah. and so they ripped her out of my hand so quickly that they lifted the cannula out of my hand and they it just was bleeding everywhere and then they just took her over to get trolley and obviously there was like a code that was called and the room just filled with doctors and nurses 
and I could hear them working on her and she was not breathing. And they were like hitting her, trying to get her to take a breath and nothing is happening. And my husband was standing between my bed and the little child that Ruby is on and he just looked like he was in a complete state of shock. He didn't know what was happening. When all of a sudden, all of a sudden, um, the bed filled up with blood. I could feel it. I was like, I was sitting in a pool. Because I was going to ask and you, did they wean you off Clexing? Because you're 36 weeks at this stage. No, no. Um, and so, because I wasn't expecting to go into labour. And so everyone was with Ruby. No one was with me except this lovely one midwife that had been with me the whole time. But she's just gently called that, oh, mum, can we go? And I can hear her, but I'm sort of, in shock, I think. Yep. And then I hear her say again, excuse me, mum, can we go? And I remember laying there thinking, you're going to have to say that a bit louder. And you need goes, to find detention voice. Yeah. And so then half the doctors ran to me, the other half stayed with Ruby. And I remember they just came and was this massive needle that they put in my thigh, and I guess that stopped the bleeding. Yeah. Um, that's what it was designed to do. And Dennis, my husband, just looked at me and he said, who do I go with? Because they were taking Ruby. And I said, go with Ruby. And so he went with her. I didn't know if she was alive or dead. Um, she still hadn't taken a breath at this stage. And, yeah, I didn't know what was happening. I was just laying the pool of my own blood. And it was the most horrific thing I've ever experienced. How did they start your hemorrhage? Because I've heard that they pretty much, like, jump on your uterus and try and push it down and contract it. But have yes, you delivered your placenta at this stage? I can't remember. I think I had. I think I had delivered the placenta and then the, the pushing down with the most excruciating thing that I've ever felt. And it was so awful. And your body's just so delicate. You know, you're thinking that you've just given birth. Everything's sore, everything's broken. And, yeah, it's just so painful but also... All I could think about was Ruby. I just, I just don't need to be alive if you're alive. And they're saying, yes, but you know when you can tell someone's lying to you because they don't want you to get distressed. Girlfriend hasn't and, taken her eyes off you, so she actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been like, lies, go and find out the other go find someone that knows. Um, yeah, so that was just absolutely traumatic. Um, and I guess. I don't even know how to explain it. It was so traumatic. Finally, my husband came back up to half an hour or something and he told me that they hooked up for a machine and she was breathing. She didn't take that first breath for like 14 minutes or something. So then, you know, that's hard. Eat about brain damage yep. and all this kind of thing. And they were very optimistic and it seemed to think that she'd be okay, but like she couldn't breathe on her own just yet. And, so I, you know, after they kicked me up and everything, I had a shower and I just wanted to see her. That's what I could think of. So I just tried to clean myself up and get some clothes on so I could go and see her. And then I went to the Kazenitsu and I got to have my first hold of her. It was probably around midnight by then. That's such a different experience, isn't it? Like... I don't think I could, I don't think you could ever understand what it's like to be a special care on a Q mom until you lived it. Like, no, 
the the and that immediate attachment also, stuff. Like I just yeah. So we didn't just get our skin like because Dennis helped the others, and I got to help her, and we didn't get to do the breastfeed or any of those things that you were wanting to do. You know, especially because the other two had gone so well. I just I had said to my kids when I was leaving the house that morning, "Mummy will be gone for two nights, and then I'll be back." You know, because that's what had happened with the other two. I just hadn't even crossed my mind that this might go differently. And, you know, you think by the time you have your third baby that you're fairly well rehearsed on this and you sort of didn't expect anything to go wrong. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we both had a little hold of her and then by the stage, I think it was up for you guys, and my husband said, I'm going to go back home to Cold Paul. And I went back to my room and I was just shaking. But it was black. I don't know how to, like, I'd just been in a war zone or something like this. My body could not regulate what it had just been through. And I think I may have called you. You did. And I remember hearing your voice (laughs) and I was like, she is not okay. No, I wasn't okay. I think you had texted me or something and said you and I was just like, no, I'm not okay. Yes, because family grapevine works better than, like, (laughs) <laughs> any kind of like piece of <laughs> what do they say on my big fat gray wedding telegram telephone telegreek well it should be tele man because <laughs> and look we know that usually when it goes through the family great bad it gets embellished um there's so always usually have things with a grain of salt but 10%. Time, no <laughs> yeah so it was actually really good to talk to you and i just had a big cry and you know i felt like i could just get it all off my chest and i know that you have been through so many struggles with, you know, trying to conceive and have your babies and like, but like, you really understood me. So that was really important for me to be able to talk to you at that time and just get that off my chest because I think the thing about like birth trauma and childbirth is that because you see it as such a normal part of life, no one really thinks that something delicious just happens here. It looks kind of like, okay, did you want some soup or jelly? And it's like, yes, sorry. Yeah, actually, I'd like to just talk about the traumatic situation that just happened to me. <laughs> uh, I was just like, I was just, and I, you know, I'd given birth all day and I couldn't sleep. Like, I was so tired, but then, but I couldn't actually let myself go to sleep. And then in the finish, I just ended up walking back up and down to finish the all night just to see that she was still alive because I just, you know, when the baby has been in your belly for nine months, and now they're in another room up the hallway. It's a weird experience. I think I nearly broke myself getting to the special care. And it wasn't anything to do with the nurses or the doctors or the, the oh, yeah. special care team. It had nothing to do with that. You just, it's just the biggest mind fuck in the way of you need to be there. But when I would be there, I'd be like, what is my purpose? What's my role here? What am I doing? If that makes yeah. sense. And I just felt so much grief. And again, I didn't want to sit around explaining to somebody while sitting at the side of my son's crib, bawling my eyes out hysterically in the context of, you know, there's a 26-week older over there and this baby has a heart condition and these babies are twins and they were born at 32 weeks and one's, you know, going to have surgery. I didn't feel like there was... I, not that the nurse yeah. wouldn't have held space for me, but I didn't feel like it was fair in the context of other people in that room for me to feel all the emotions that I would feel in the context of my job. I think that's mothers in general, women in general. Oh, without a doubt. 
like, without a doubt. They're like, have you had space for this lately? No, I just didn't want to worry you. So I just sat here and acted. <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to press the bachelor again. Yeah, I thought that was the annoying side. Yeah, so it is. it was a weird feeling. I remember very vividly laying down. And I kept saying, it's all over, it's all over, it's all over, it's all over. Afterwards, because if any, I never have to be pregnant again, I never have to give birth again. Like, for me, you know when they say, how do you know when you're done? Yeah. I was done. Yeah. <laughs> and I was definitely never felt done up until that point. But I just I could never, ever experience this again. She's like, I you know. I never felt done. I never felt until that moment when I was saying, now my bike said almost die. I thought, I, the trauma, the terror that I felt, and thinking about maybe even leaving my other kids out of mum, I just, it's like, everything that I feel like it's over, it's over. Yeah. There's a photo you sent me that I thought really encapsulated your isolation in the experience of Ruby and what a lot of mums had experienced with COVID. And it's your husband and your two kids standing outside the hospital at a window and you're standing on the other side. And I just, yeah. that yeah. that photo is probably pure joy to you because there's a photo of your whole family. But when I looked at it, I was like, I just saw isolation. Yeah, and it was hard because I wasn't really allowed to have visiting. So you're allowed to have your partner, but um, obviously that's in and out of town and um, we have two other kids, so he couldn't hang out with me all day. Yep. Um, and so it was really isolating because in the, with the other babies, I'd been almost suffocated by visitors um, that wanted to come and see the baby and me well. And now I just had day after day alone. Um, yeah. After a while, I started to feel grateful for that because I was able to just like focus on Ruby and nothing else because I wanted to establish breastfeeding and stuff like that. But probably from the first three days, I felt extremely lonely. Um, and, I, you know, you want to share the joy of your baby with your form and the same parents with aunties and stuff. And I couldn't, we didn't get to do any of that um, because of COVID and because of the special case. You know, because you just weren't allowed to have any visitors at all in there. And Ruby now. Fair enough. Yeah. Ruby now, she's good. Angel. Perfect. My beautiful darling child in the world. Yes. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your story. I I know that there, there'll be parts that anybody and everyone can relate to. And I think, you know, I know that you are a real champion of um, public health, but to hear where the gaps lie and that women are still trying to find their creative solutions to problem solve service gaps is. And when you're in the health field and you have good health knowledge, um, I think women who don't will hear that you struggled and really feel validated. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see it. And, you know, it takes a lot of things for people to see it. So I always say thank you for, you know, creating space just to be that in that place. My absolute pleasure. Herd recognises the traditional lands and waters on which this podcast was recorded.